Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if that is you, if you really, truly want to seek a life of freedom, choice, and abundance, then this podcast episode is exactly for you. On the show today, I was joined by Terry Ryder, who is a long-term friend of the show. And he's been in the industry for 35, 40 years um, as, a, as a property commentator. He's got a huge amount of experience. He's seen all kinds of different cycles in Australian property and all of that kind of stuff. And what we talk about today is the truth of Australian property investing in 2022. We helped to cut through the media noise. We discuss, you know, things like is the property market going to crash? What's, you know, what's the impact of interest rates? Um, what, you know, what about inflation? We talk about national debt, the impact of Ukraine. We talk heaps of different stuff. And we we really cut through the noise to give you a fresh and insightful perspective on what is actually happening in the property market right now. So if you're interested in becoming a more intelligent investor and making better property decisions, then this is the episode for you. And of course, I believe that you're going to like this because I think it's a really great one and I really enjoyed it too. And if you do like it, I'd love for you to share it with a family member, friend or loved one, like, rate and reviewers on whatever platform you are listening to. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is a you know a favorite guest of the podcast, the venerable, the enigmatic, the iconoclastic oracle of property opportunity opportunity, Terry Ryder. Terry, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you for that wonderful, I think, introduction. Um, I do prefer Oracle of Information, but I'll let it pass. Okay. Well, I thought about Oracle of Proportunity. I thought that might be interesting as well, but I thought you know, it might be getting a little spicy. How do you feel about being an iconoclast? I don't even know what that is, so um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's I, thought, good. I thought it was some kind of micro microbiotic type being, but... Um, well, you can be you can be a little robotic at times, fair enough. Like, but no, an iconoclast is someone who who challenges or attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. Someone who challenges the status quo. Well, that's exactly what I am. So, okay, well, I, I need to identify <laughs> with this this title. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, I feel like I've been doing that um, most of my career, and that um, you sometimes wonder if anybody's listening because it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That in life, despite everything, people still think that what they read in the newspaper is credible um, about anything, but say about real estate. Mm. There's nobody writing for our newspapers about real estate who's an expert, and most of the people they're quoting are non-experts as well. So people like you and I come along, and we are actually are quite expert in this field, and what, what we say is, is credible and worth listening to. But most people would sooner believe what's in the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald than what you and I say. Yeah. I was just thinking as you say that, I think there's a reason for that, right? And it's not, I don't think it's a good one, but there, I think there is a reason for that. And that's because there's a lot of people out there who claim to be experts and they've usually just got a vested interest. Now, transparently, yeah, I run a company that helps people to invest in property. So I guess I have a vested interest, right? And, and you run a company that shares information about the property markets. You kind of have a vested interest. But, so, but, but there's a lot of misinformation out there from people who say that they're experts and then they're just essentially spruiking stuff as well. And so I think it's quite hard for people to try and decipher like, you know, myths from fact. And so, you know, then they, they turn to the media because they feel like they feel like it's independent, you know. Um, but of course, you know, 
the media has got an agenda as well, and their agenda is to, you know, sell more advertising space, basically. Now, so There is no independent media anymore. They're all biased to a certain degree, and they're all pretty shabby at what they do to a large degree. But, um, you know, people tend to attach credibility to people with big names and big titles. So people will believe the property price forecast of the chief economist for Commonwealth Bank even though his track record is absolutely appalling. He gets it wrong spectacularly pretty much every time, but still people will quote that and say, well, property prices are going to fall because the Commonwealth Bank says they are. Well, look at their track record and, and determine whether you should give them any credibility or not. Yeah, I tend to find that there's a common there's a common theme, though, with a lot of these commentators. The commentators tend to be more active when their prediction or forecast or whatever you want to call it is that things are going to go bad. And that could either be because they continuously think it's all going to go bad, or it could just be because news news and media outlets only really seek out those quotes from those people when they when they're saying something that's because, you know, like the whole the whole newspaper adage, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, like, you know, there's a whole kind of uh psychology around what actually moves the news and that's that's negative news and that's get people gets get gets people more engaged that's absolutely true i'm doing a presentation tonight um online and i've prepared a slideshow one of the slides is uh, i've constructed as the misinformation cycle mm. and that um in simple terms most of the people are part of that cycle have a vested interest in a sensational negative and so that's what we're mostly fed about real estate, but about anything, really. You know, you're correct. The when I worked in newspapers in the 1980s and the 1990s, and um, then the adage was it bleeds, it leads. Well, it still is the yeah. fundamental tenant of, of journalism, whether they realise that or not. Um, a sensational negative will work every time. But it's got worse. It's got worse. There used to be quality media and tabloid media, but, but now for... In my opinion, it's all tabloid media, yeah. and it's all about clickbait. And quite often, most of the time, the headline that induces you to click on the article is at best an exaggeration. But quite often now, it's an absolute lie. The headline mm. is an absolute fabrication just to get you to click. And when you click on the article, you find that the content of the article doesn't actually relate to the headline you just clicked on at all. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a, it's a form of fraud, you know. If, if you you and I tried to um, earn money in our businesses through fraudulent means, we'd, we'd be charged with serious offences. But media yeah. gets away with it every single day. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? It's because yeah. It's, anyway, we could go on about the the perils of media for some time, but. If we, it is central but, to what we're going to talk about today. It is central to what we're going to talk about. But like, if a lot of what the media is saying is is farcical, right? What is the truth about the state of the property market in Australia in 2022? What do you think? Well, I think the truth is that um, we have, as we normally do, um, uh, different situations in different parts of Australia. We don't have an Australian property market. That's the first thing people need to understand. That's one of the, the first sources of misinformation in media. They talk about the Australian property market. Prices are going to rise X percent or fall X percent. Well, there is no Australian property market. People have to understand there are thousands of different markets. And so what's happening this year is that we have a high level of segmentation, which is the norm in Australia. We've got some markets that are rising very, very strongly, some that are rising moderately, some are kind of chugging along. There's a few that's, that are actually showing signs of falling. Um, nothing unusual about that. So what that means is people have to understand that uh, they need to be selective about what they buy, whereas last year it felt like you could buy anywhere 
and you're going to make money. To a certain degree, that was true, but it won't be true this year because um, we have a, a different set of conditions, more normal conditions this year. Yeah, so we did it. We did an analysis recently internally, um, and we we looked at all of the statistically relevant suburbs in Australia. So we excluded about two thirds of all of the suburbs in Australia because they were too small, not enough sales volume, whatever. And we looked at all of the statistically relevant suburbs, and in 2021, 89 percent of suburbs that were statistically significant grew, which was which was wild. Like that's like that's the largest proportion of suburbs that have grown. I think in like the last like 20 years or something. It's crazy. And I think now what's happening is we're kind of renormalizing again, and that's okay, that's fine, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to go bad, right? It just means that we're actually renormalizing to a state where, guess what? Some suburbs go up and some suburbs go down, and that is absolutely true in all markets. And what I think is really interesting on that, just to expand on that a little bit further, is um, kind of two kind of two parts to that. So first, people think that. You know, like the Sydney market, for example, grows or declines. You know, they see they see things in the newspaper like Sydney property prices are going up or Sydney property prices are going down. But I can guarantee you that even no matter what that headline is, even if whatever most suburbs in Sydney are going up or most suburbs are going down, there's also a, there's also a bunch that are doing exactly the opposite, and usually by some degree of extreme. Like you might actually find that if some suburbs are going up by twenty percent, there's others that are going down by twenty percent. You know, it's it's not even just sort of vaguely different. It's usually radically different, but they still operate within the same generalized market. And that's an example of what you're saying. There's a highly segmented market that where different suburbs move in different ways for for different reasons. Yeah, and I think. I'll just got one more point, and then I'm going to kind of give you some airspace. But the other thing I want to say about the Sydney and Melbourne market, and I think where I think where a lot of people go wrong, and particularly where the media goes really wrong, is that you know the overall market cap or the overall total dollar value of real estate in Sydney and Melbourne is significantly large, right? Because it's got a huge density of properties, and statistically, they're significantly more expensive than other parts of the country. So what tends to happen, I think, is when you then have homogenize you know what's happening in the broader market it's easy if sydney property prices go down it's easy to kind of transfer that impact on other parts of other yeah. parts of the country and kind of i think excuse the data basically is what i'm saying because there's parts of the country that are actually absolutely booming it does and that that factor is exacerbated by two things one is that most of our major media emanates from sydney and melbourne so yeah. what's happening there they tend to extrapolate to all of australia and secondly, that they are much more attractive to a negative situation than a positive. So in the latest data from CoreLogic, for example, what it shows is, is fantastic growth still happening in most markets across Australia. The only, the only markets that are showing any negative data, according to them, only according to them, because there are other sources with different information, which are generally ignored by media. The only one showing negative data is Sydney and Melbourne, and that's what media is focused on. And it's, we're seeing headlines saying that property prices are falling across Australia, the boom is over. Um, based on one month's data from one source, mm. and it's absolute nonsense. Yeah, it's pretty interesting though, because like that is the narrative that people are believing. Like the narrative that people are believing is that property prices are going to crash, uh, all of this kind of stuff. Now, uh, I've been saying for at least, or for I'd say probably for eighteen months, and I'm pretty sure you've probably been on the same um general trend uh, same general trend like when property prices in sydney for example started booming like they you know as they did in 2021 they started going through the roof as that was happening i was saying this won't last like this is not going to last 
this is not sustainable and it is going to go down again. Uh, you know, and as someone who lives in Sydney, you know, I'm looking at it and I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, in a couple of years, it's probably going to be a good time to buy in Sydney, but not now. But it's pretty interesting that people do get fed that narrative that says the property market in inverted commas is going down when that's just, just statistically and factually incorrect. Because as you said, like a lot of areas are booming. A lot of areas started booming in 2020, right? And so then, yes, they were amongst the suburbs that were booming in, in 2021. But that doesn't mean that they only burned because, you know, there was some blip in the system. You know, they're driven by fundamentals that are driving a long-term growth, you know, jobs, lifestyle, and affordability, the holy trinity of, of location selection, essentially. But then you've also got some areas that started booming in 2021. And you've got some areas in 2022, which are literally just starting to pop out of their you know, hibernation and starting to grow rapidly right now. So how do you think people should be thinking about this? If they're getting fed media every day that says the property market is crashing and how can they start to get to some source of truth or some source of understanding of what's going on? Are there any insights there? Yeah. Like, I mean, the I, again, I've just constructed a slide for a presentation on that subject, four-step process. Number one, stop reading newspapers. Number two, tune out all the media white noise because it's not helpful. It's mostly misinformation. Number three, do some actual research of your own mm. and look at the real data. For example, most people would rather read the what the newspaper says about the latest price data from CoreLogic rather than actually look at the, the CoreLogic actual price report. And you can see for yourself the reality of the of the numbers and it's freely available it doesn't cost any money you just click and download it and you look at the report and say hang on a minute brisbane and adelaide and many of the regional markets they're rising at a rate of more than two percent a month that's you know annualized that's over 25 percent a year there's still incredible growth happening in australia you can actually freely access that information and look at it rather than absorb the media sound bites which will always accentuate the negative and the number four in the step process, don't be a herd animal because most property investors are. They follow the herd. Mm. You know, the smart people were buying 18 months ago, but most people still don't know. I read that prices are going to fall because of COVID, so I'm going to wait. And those that waited wish the hell they didn't. And then when they read there was a boom one, they wanted to pile into the market. And, of course, they missed the best time to buy in the best places. So the average punter goes about it totally the wrong way. They absorb media sound bites and believe what they read. They are impacted by all of that and, and affects their decision-making. They don't do any real research and they just follow the herd. Those who detach from all of that and go about it sensibly and independently mm. do well in real estate, but they're relatively human numbers. So they need to be a bit more iconoclastic then, Terry? Iconoclastic, yes, um, but you will need to provide a definition when you use that term with most people. <laughs> yeah, I, th there's a quote by Mark Twain, which I love, and it's uh, something I might butcher it a little bit, but I, uh, it's, it always stands out for me. And it's something like if you, when you find yourself standing on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. And I think that, I think that, that people need to kind of take that on board a little bit more. So let's dig into this a little bit further because if, it, so, firstly, do you think the property in property prices in Sydney, Melbourne, are going to continue to decline? Well, no, I don't. Um, Interesting. Um, well, you see that the the analysis, if you can call it that, we're getting in media is usually from economists, and they think that the only factor in play here is the level of interest rates. They think the only thing that caused the boom was low interest rates, which is you know kindergarten kindergarten analysis, and they think that um, because interest rates may soon rise that property prices are going to fall everywhere and it's just it's just well, I, 
No, let, no, let's dig into that because there's a pretty like there's a pretty logical thesis for that, right? Particularly in places like Sydney, right, where where the median property price is really high, right, and so home ownership affordability has been really good. So people have been able to extend themselves a little bit further to buy buy as owner occupiers, buy properties, live in them as homes, right, and. As interest rates rise, the cost of home ownership is going to rise, and some people might find themselves stretched beyond their means, and and you know that might actually cause less demand in in the market. So, like particularly, like I'm specifically talking about you know high value markets like Sydney. So, do, do you not think that that would be true? No, I don't. I don't. Um, and know that's the general media theme. Interest rates will rise. There'll be mortgage stress everywhere. Prices will fall. And no. Lots of reasons why that's not right. Um, now, we can look at what's happened in history with interest rate rises and the impact on a boom, which is negligible. Um, but it's the buffering in the system that's being overlooked rather conveniently by media because, you know, they, they love that storyline. So there's, there's three big buffers in the system, which will mean that, you know, one or two interest rate rises isn't going to have a, a major impact on, on the average household. One is that the level of savings that have been built up in the community because of the you know, enforced savings, because of lockdown periods, et cetera, yeah. the restrictions of COVID. The second buffering is that the average household is more than two years ahead on their mortgage payments. And the third one, the biggest one, is that no one is assessed on the ability to repay a loan at the current interest rate. They are assessed on the ability to repay that loan, the current interest rate plus 3%. So if you're borrowing now, mm. you're not assessed on whether you can afford to repay that loan at 2.5%. You're assessed on your ability to repay at 5.5%. So interest rates could rise two percentage points. And the Reserve Bank put out some modelling recently that media seized upon saying if interest rates rise by two percentage points, then we think there's a possibility that property prices could fall 15%. And media lapped that up like a hungry dog. But most people actually can, can afford... Um, to repay their loans based on the buffering in the system dictated by APRA um, if interest rates are that high. So it's a very good point, Terry. That's a very good point about the buffer. Um, that there's actually, yeah, no one actually is borrowing at their actual limit. That's a very good point, actually. Yeah. So, uh, you know, media loves to rev it on about mortgage stress and, and not, there's no official definition of it. So anyone who wants to generate a negative hit on all, all they need to do is say, Look, we define mortgage stress as anyone who's paying more than 25% of their in household income on their on their household costs. Yeah. Well, who the hell says that that puts people in distress? Um, I don't think it does. But, yeah. you know, somebody just decides arbitrarily to suit their purpose, which is to achieve publicity, to declare that that's mortgage stress and therefore, you know, 40% of households in Australia are in mortgage stress and media will lap that up. They'll never question it. They'll never ask any hard questions of the source of that data. And so the, the cycle continues. But to ask me, or answer your original question, which is about Sydney and Melbourne, um, there are a lot of things in the system that aren't being factored in because the people making the commentary and writing the articles think that it's all about the level of interest rates. What about other big factors? And the biggest of all is the reopening of international borders. Mm. The fact that we now have large numbers already of overseas migrants and international students coming back into primarily Sydney and Melbourne. What's the impact of that? We're already seeing the vacancy rates for Sydney and Melbourne, particularly the inner city, coming down dramatically, and now mm. we're starting to see rents in the inner city rising again. So there's this whole new way of demand in the market that nobody that's being quoted in the media has actually factored in because they think it's all about the level of interest rates. 
Yeah, it, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, so and just to expand on one of the points you made about the kind of like the war chest that's been saved up over COVID. So um, last I read, the combined savings in business and personal savings, right? And and the business piece is interesting because when businesses have got surplus cash, they do that. They they grow. They it supports jobs and all of that kind of stuff. It's a combined total of four hundred and thirty billion dollars of just cash sitting there waiting to be deployed on economic you know opportunities whether that be buying real estate growing businesses creating more opportunities all of that kind of stuff which is pretty interesting and yeah i tend to agree with you that i think that there's a lot more opportunity in the system than most people are talking about but do you think let me ask a slightly different way and i'm curious what area do you think that all things being equal over the next let's say i don't know 12 24 months and not too attached to a specific timeline but just generally speaking over the next little bit do you think that regional areas are going to outperform capitals or do you think that um you think capitals are going to swing back or what do you think's going on there i think um look, look i just want to say one more thing about you no know, sydney melbourne and then go to that question um the media is saying that prices are falling in sydney and melbourne and that's one month's data from CoreLogic. Other research sources say different things, whereas um, CoreLogic says in the month of March there was a slight reduction in median price for Sydney and Melbourne. SKM Research actually records a rise in March for those, both Sydney and Melbourne. So That's who, interesting. Uh, whose data are we going to believe? Look, I've been highlighting this for years. I've quite often in some of my reports highlighted, here, here's median price situation in all the capital cities from four different sources, you know, there's Domain, there's SQM, there's CoreLogic, the Bureau of Statistics, they've all got different results. I mean, I just Googled as an exercise, what's the median price, median house price for Blacktown, suburb of Sydney? Yep. I, I, um, I got an answer from six different online sources, including CoreLogic, Domain and others. Yep. And the range of answers ranges from 745000 to 910000 So what is, what is the median price for, for Blacktown? Who knows? It's any, anywhere between 750000 and 900000 according to these different sources. Who do you believe? Now, if you Google any suburb in Australia, you're, you're going to get the same level of disparity. And media tends to regard you know, data from CoreLogic as absolutely gospel truth and sacrosanct. It's not. It's all dodgy data. <laughs> and, you know, you've got one source saying Sydney prices and Melbourne prices are falling, another saying, no, they're not, they're rising. Who do you believe? Well, probably neither of them because, you know, what they're attempting to do is ludicrous. They're attempting to put all the tens of thousands of transactions in a city as big as Sydney with over 700 suburbs and as disparate and different as Campbelltown versus the Northern Beaches or Penrith versus Bondi. And distill all that into a single figure to describe Sydney property market, and it's ludicrous. Yeah. Um, now, you asked about regional markets. Regional markets have been outperforming their capital cities for quite a long time, for at least mm. five years, and the latest data from CoreLogic, if we can believe it, and I'm going to make one more comment about that so people can really understand why it's dodgy data. Um, the latest figures from CoreLogic suggest that regional markets are still very much outperforming the capital cities overall, but you've got to look at it and individuals because um, Brisbane is still pumping strongly despite everything that's happened with the floods. Adelaide's pumping unbelievably, um, and but many of the regional markets are doing very well as well. But I just want to make this other comment, and I would like people to think about this. On the first of every month, CoreLogic publishes its price report saying what happened for, to prices in the previous month. So on the 1st of April, it published its report on 
prices in March. And what they published on the 1st of April was a six-page analysis full of graphs and charge and commentary and what it all means. They would have been writing that report in the middle of March to get it ready, to get all everything ready to publish on the 1st of April. So how can they tell us what's happening in property prices in March when they're writing a report long before March has even ended? But even taking that out of the equation, all the sales aren't through the system mm. at the end of March. There's a lot of sales that haven't yet settled. Um, so they don't do not have complete data for March to say what's happening in March. They're, they're perpetrating a deception on the people of Australia. The media laps it up, they don't care. But no one's ever asked that question. How come they can produce this incredibly detailed report the day after the, the month ends, which purports to say definitively, without anybody questioning it, what happened to prices in March? It's- yeah, there's another interesting piece in that too, right? Because they can't report the price until the property has settled, right? They can they get and they get that information from the Valuer General's office uh, on yeah. the, on settlement, but the price that is paid or agreed happens long and long before the settlement date, right? Uh-huh. So t- so typically, you know, like by, when you get the property under contract, then you'll have let's say 21 days of conditional, you know, building a pest and finance and all of that kind of stuff, and then 30 days of settlement. So you have got 51 days between when the price exchange happened or the price discovery moment happened and then when the reporting moment happens a lot can happen in that period of time you know like a lot a lot can change in 51 days in a fast moving market right so that's pretty interesting actually too yeah so the, the central message here is all real estate data is dodgy data it's all rubbery figures you cannot face you cannot take it to the bank mm. i think people um overestimates its importance and, and the other really important thing is here even if it was accurate it doesn't actually tell you anything useful about where you should buy it, it tells it doesn't you, tell you where it's going past. yeah yeah it doesn't inform the future and the things that people should be interested in um are things other than what's happened with prices historically what's happened in the last month last quarter the last year it's irrelevant to where you should be thinking of buying or where well, back to my question then terry right because i've i've got a viewpoint right and i'm interested in your viewpoint where do you think like do you think that people should be thinking about regional areas um or do you think they should be thinking about and look i, I get your point about capital city areas because they're not all the same right perth adelaide brisbane hobart you know they're all different right so but broadly speaking i, I and i kind of tend, you know i kind of tend to basically almost think like there's Sydney and Melbourne, and then the rest of Australia is probably a better way. Of, it's probably a better way of thinking about it. So it's usually the exception to the rule, actually, Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, so it's kind of like when people when I yeah. So I'm just kind of thinking about that now. So okay, so Sydney and Melbourne versus the rest of Australia, and the rest of Australia includes the rest of the capital cities and all regional centres and all of that other kind of stuff. Where would you be putting your money in 2022? Well, you know, it comes down to individual locations. There are some capital cities, particularly the smaller ones, that, that are absolutely pumping and have good mm. prospects for future growth, um, particularly Brisbane and Adelaide, but Perth also has good potential. Um, and then there's a whole range of possibilities in regional areas, um, regional Queensland, regional New South Wales um, in particular, but also, you know, right across regional Australia, there are good possibilities, regional Western Australia. Um, regional you know, South Australia. Regional South Australia. Um, you know, we've done recently um, a couple of reports, one six months ago, and one that's just about to be published now with, with CanStar, the comparison site, and, and um, we're, we've been ranking markets on certain criteria, and um, regional Western Australia ranks very highly in both those reports, 
Um, regional South Australia ranks very highly. Uh, the, the most recent one, which was about first home buyers, therefore affordability. Um, regional Queensland and regional New South Wales actually are one and two on the report we did six months ago into where we ranked markets on their prospects for future growth based on a whole series of different metrics. So, um, and, and we're seeing that in the numbers and also just looking at it kind of more anecdotally, there are some wonderful regional centres in both New South Wales and Queensland which are relatively early in the cycle. They've got great prospects for growth because of what's happening in their local economies. They offer affordability and good rental yields and low vacancies and all of that. Um, and um, so that would be a good place to focus. The other thing that's worth saying is that there's no one right answer to that question. It depends mm. on the individual. And it's a point I make continually because I keep getting asked, where's the best place to buy? Well, it depends on you. Um, you could have six people in the room and there'll be six different answers depending on the circumstances of those 100%. six individuals. How yeah. much they earn, how old they are, what's their risk profile and what they already own would dictate where's the best place for them to buy right now. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more because there's some, yeah, there's definitely some locations that are more suited for different types of strategies and you know, emotional profiles, all of that kind of stuff. Okay, so where I'm trying to get to, right, is um you know, I, I really don't care, right, about which one. I'm completely market agnostic, right? I think there's no such thing as a bad asset. There's only bad asset selection. And that kind of goes back to your point about like, what is the right location or what is the right property for me? It might not be the right location or right property for you, right? So uh, for some people, you know, buying in places like Sydney and Melbourne right now could be great. And for other people, it might not be. I, but I tend to, like, I tend to think though, broadly speaking, that there is so much value being pushed into the areas outside of Sydney and Melbourne that I think that that's really hard to ignore. You know, I think that, you know, there's, look, you can never believe what a politician says, but, but the politicians are continuing, like there's an election coming up and there's a lot of people talking about all the jobs and stuff that are being pushed into the regional areas. Not only that, you do have the affordability piece. You touched on that CanStar report you just talked about and affordability is real. Like if people can buy you know, if someone has a choice between buying a $1 million house in Sydney versus a $500,000 house in, I don't know, regional New South Wales, and to get the same quality of property, same size of property, same or whatever, right? Then then that's a real thing because I can save 500, say 500 grand and use that money to live a better life and do all of that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, when we get, when we cook it down to jobs, lifestyle, and affordability, it seems like most of the opportunity is going to exist outside of the denser centers because yeah. that's where most of the projects are being pushed to. And the reason for that is there's actually room, <laughs> there's room and resources to actually do bigger projects. Um, that then drives job opportunities, and which, as we have migration coming into the country, they're going to they will be economically driven to seek out the opportunities that exist in those regional. Uh, re, I say regional loosely because you know I don't mean far flung country towns. I mean like rest of the country that's not Sydney, Melbourne. The people are going to seek out those opportunities, and then there's people get to have a better lifestyle because they also it's more affordable. There's more room. There's all that kind of stuff. So I right. tend to think that right now it's like. I think me personally, I think there's going to be a cyclical shift that's going to make Sydney and Melbourne much more exciting over the next, say, you know, four or five years. But right now, I think that the main thrust of the opportunity exists outside of those areas. Absolutely, it does. And there's some really good, solid reasons for supporting that argument, other than the fact that they're more affordable and you get better rental returns. 
Um, number one is the, the dominant trend at the moment and has been for some years is the exodus to affordable lifestyle, as I like to call it. And contrary to what, again, media misinformation, they, they tell people that this has been caused by the pandemic. So when the pandemic's dealt with, people will move back. It wasn't caused by the pandemic. It's been going on for many years and yeah. it's been losing population to internal migration for more than 10 years in Melbourne and big numbers for the last five. So even before we'd even heard of COVID, it was happening and it's still happening and it will continue to happen because it's about um, the pursuit of an affordable lifestyle enabled by technology, which means people can effectively work remotely and more and more people are, are making that choice. The second thing is the big infrastructure spend. That's hugely in influential and impactful, and a lot of it has been directed to the regions. I mean, our latest, we have a top 10 report, you know, the infrastructure-led economic recovery, national top 10 places most likely to benefit from that, and there are more locations in the regions in our top 10 than are in the capital cities. And the third thing is local events, which can have a big, big influence. And um, I was doing an interview live on ABC Radio yesterday talking about specifically regional Victoria, and they were worried about what the Reserve Bank said, the property price is going to fall 15%. Mm. I said, so a value is going to fall across regional Victoria by 15%. I said, no, nothing like that's going to happen. You know, they're, they're talking generally, um, they've got a, a prediction model, which I think is flawed anyway, but there are local reasons why regional Victoria is not going to do that. And one of the ones was they were actually talking about in the segment before I came live on air, and that was the fact that it's highly likely that in four years' time, regional Victoria is going to host the Commonwealth Games in places like Bendigo and Ballarat and Geelong and other places. Now, what is that going to do for property markets over the next four or five years in regional Victoria? Because they're going to have to spend massively on infrastructure. They're going to have yeah. to upgrade all their sports facilities. They're going to have to improve their transport infrastructure. The tourism industry is going to have to invest in um, infrastructure because there's not going to be enough hotel rooms in those places to cater for all, all the spectators, et cetera, and the competitors. So that's a massive local event that's going to mean that regional Victoria is certainly going to be an exception to that generalised statement. Um, and then you've got in regional Queensland the impact of the impending 2032 Olympics, which isn't just in Brisbane. It's also Toowoomba. It's also the Sunshine Coast. It's also the Gold Coast. It's also Townsville. I mean, these, these local factors are the most dominant of all. So you've got all those things in the mix, which means that so many parts of regional Australia are going to be compelling places for people to buy where you can buy affordably, good rental yields, vacancies are hideously low, which is great for landlords, not so great for tenants. So yeah. you know, wonderful prospects to be found. Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing there that people kind of miss. You've, you've said the words um, good rental yields a couple of times. I think people miss the importance of that. Um, they they miss the they miss understand how important that is to building a prolific profitable property portfolio because anyone could go buy a house right but the difference between buying one property which is where seventy one percent of property investors get to buying two properties where ninety percent of property investors get to and buying five properties where only one percent of property investors get to is the ability to be able to continue to borrow to have that liquidity in your portfolio to be able to continue to borrow right and so i think that's that's a huge piece that people are missing and when they're thinking about risk they're not thinking about the risk of actually never achieving their goals <laughs> because they can't actually build a portfolio that's going to be able to sustain what they actually want long term which is really interesting it's a really important point because your ability to keep going back to the bank and asking for a loan to buy the next property the next property depends to a very large degree on whether the properties you already own are paying their own way so if you've got two investors, they each own five properties, 
One of them has five properties which are all negatively geared, so it's taking money out of their pocket for every single one of them yeah. every month. And the other one's got five positive cash flow properties. The one with the, the five po- positive cash flow properties is more likely to get a loan to buy a sixth property than the one who's got five negatively geared properties. And, yeah. and that's a really important point in developing a portfolio. It's important that the early purchases have um, the ability to sustain themselves without dipping into the the income, the personal income of the of the borrower, because it affects your ability to get financed to buy the next one and the next one. Exactly. And so buying in location with high rental yields is really important. Yeah, of course. Now, just like on balance, you don't want to just chase rental real yields. Just in the same way, you don't want to just chase growth. Like I think right. having having that right combination that is going to allow you to you know build your wealth and allow you to be able to continue to buy properties so that you can build a portfolio that's going to be able to sustain the life you want. Like that's the goal, right? So, and I think and that's where choose, a lot of people go. And on. if you choose the right locations, you can have both. Exactly. I keep getting asked the question from people: Should I go for high yield or should I go for capital growth? And I said, Well, you should go both. for both. You both. go for both because people think it's either one or the other, and it's not. Yeah. If you, bought, if you bought in, say, I don't know, Ballarat three years ago, you will have achieved fantastic capital growth, but you also would have bought probably at a rental yield above 5%. And three years later, because there's such a shortage of properties there and low vacancies, the rents will have increased magnificently. Yeah. So you, you will have a really high rental return. And that's happening across the country with people who are buying. Um, well in regional areas and also in the smaller capital cities. Yeah, there's another interesting phenomenon that's going on at the moment, which we've picked up on, is that rents are moving so fast, right? So typically, um, we try and target what are typically higher yields, right? When you've got the national average yield of being like, you know, 3.5% or whatever, you know, we're typically targeting five and a half, six, you know, sort of 7%, even higher. But what's been happening recently is we've noticed that you know, we can get a property under contract to like 5% yield. And by the time it settles, it's going to be, by the time it settles, not even like a year later, by the time it settles and you actually go to put a tenant in the property, it's suddenly a six and a half, seven percent yield. I can talk from personal, from personal experience. We bought a property in WA recently and um, I think it was 5.2% yield was the rental, rental appraisal when we bought the property and it just settled and now it's going to rent out for 7% yield, <laughs> 7% yield because rental prices are moving so fast. And I think that that's what some people are not understanding is that we actually have, and this is not to, like, I don't want to sound like this can come across wrong. We have a rental, we have a rental and housing crisis in Australia, which is not good, right? Because that means that people can't afford, there's, there's not enough houses for all the people who want them to either buy them or live in them, which is you know, socially bad, right? But it doesn't change the economics of how that how that fits with with property. And and at the moment, we're not able to build properties fast enough. So we sh- I can't even remember what the shortfall is like one hundred and fifty thousand shortfall or something. And it's taking twice as long to build pro- properties at the moment yeah. because of the shortages of everything. Yeah, so it's a real issue, and um, and it's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of the rental shortage because neither of the major policies. Are, give any indication they're even aware that it exists. They don't have any policies to deal with it. They're all talking about housing affordability, although none of their policies actually address affordability. Yeah. But none of them, you know, in the, the recent federal budget and the federal opposition's reply and the policies that we're seeing rolled out in the election campaign, none of them have any policies to address the rental shortage crisis. And the Greens, if they ever get the balance of power, have got policies which will make it immeasurably worse. So 
it's a great time to be a landlord and it's going to continue to be because we have a shortage like I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never seen vacancies so low and I've never seen rental growth figures as high as we're currently seeing. That's because they've never been as dramatic as they are right now. So, you know, I'm experiencing with my own personal investing, but many of the clients that I talked to are having the same thing. You know, you, I bought a property in a capital city, Adelaide, 18 months ago. Um, the rent has gone up. It was 310000 and the rent initially was 340000 which which was already a $340. If it was three hundred forty grand, mate, you'd be laughing. $340 a week on a property that cost three hundred and ten grand to buy. Which is good. But the rent is now $440 now 18 months later. Um, so the rental return is, well, I don't know, it's over 7%. Yeah, not that's crazy. For, not, not bad for a capital city. And the value of the property, according to the bank, uh, with a recent refinancing, is now 450000 where I, I paid 18 months ago three hundred and ten. Yeah. So great capital growth, incredible increase in rentals, wonderful rental yield uh, for anywhere, but particularly a capital city. But those That's things- a 7.3% yield. So I just worked it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you told somebody that you could, you could buy in a capital city and get that kind of a rental yield, they would think it's not achievable because, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, 2 or 3% might be the best you can do. But in so many smaller capital cities and regional areas, you can achieve those sort of outcomes uh, by buying in the right places and um, buying the right sort of property. Um, and it's still achievable. Um, and the people who succeed will be the ones who tune out all the white noise from the media and just get on with it and um, and buy well in those sorts of areas. And they will, through that mechanism, five or ten years um, from now have a very good property portfolio. Totally. I think one of the things that kind of um, unsettles people though is the, you know, we're in, a, we're in a much more kind of globalized world. You know, there's things going on in in Ukraine and, you know, China and the US. And I think people get kind of like caught up in that because it makes them feel uncertain, you know, and particularly with the media's propensity to superimpose things that are happening globally on things that might be happening locally. I think that can really really skew people's perspective because I read, you know, I, I, I do try and start today with things that are going on in the world. And there's talk about like the US debt crisis and Ray Dalio released a book about the changing world order and all of this kind of stuff. And people think, oh my God, you know, that must mean all of that stuff's happening here in Australia as well. And I think they forget about like the, the the tremendous levels of prosperity that exist in this country. And I just want to point out an interesting fact, and I'd love to kind of get your take on this kind of like global versus local um, psychological lens. But in the US, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, the interest rates are rising in the US and there's, oh, what about what about the national debt and all of this kind of stuff? And people are genuinely concerned it could be an issue. And in the US, the the national the government debt to GDP ratio is 138.1%, right? Which means that they have 138.1%. The, the total amount of debt is 138.1% of the total amount of gross productive output of the whole country. Okay. So not great, but also there's countries that are at like 250%, right? Japan's at the top of this is crazy, right? In Australia, our gross debt is at 45.1% of the GDP. Our gross debt is at 45.1% of GDP, and it's forecast to get up to a max of 50% debt to GDP, right? Which, I don't know, if you're thinking about that like a property and you had a 50% LVR on the property, would you be that concerned that you were like overextending yourself or, or anything like that? And I think that these not really it's back to the kind of points early on like looking at these headlines and actually not actually doing the digging yourself to actually understand the numbers can give people a really skewed perspective what do you think 
Oh, absolutely. People worry about all sorts of extraneous matter that are completely irrelevant. Um, you mentioned Ukraine. There was a headline only a matter of a few weeks ago which said um, property prices tipped to fall 15% because of the war in Ukraine. And I thought, what possible impact on Australian property prices could the war in Ukraine have to the extent that property prices will fall at the level that we've never seen before? And, of course, it was absolute rubbish. And it came from one of the greatest sources of real estate misinformation, who is Shane Oliver, Chief Economist for ANP Capital, who's got a, the most spectacular track record of mis, uh, of getting uh, forecasts about property prices wrong. He's just spectacular and, and his consistency because he just doesn't get it. So he is putting forward the proposition that because of the war in Ukraine, our prices are going to fall 15%. And I thought, my God, you know, it, it just gets sillier and sillier. Um, if anything, the war in Ukraine will be more likely to actually um, extreme property prices more solid because what we have learned from recent times is that in times of uncertainty, people, it's a cliche, but it's true, people retreat to the solidity and safety of bricks and mortar. We saw that uh, in the wake of the the, the COVID crisis, it's one of the big factors why we've had this property boom. Everything was uncertain. The share market was crashing. People were worried. They retreated to what they knew was tried and proven and safe and solid. And we saw yeah. it post the GFC. In the years after the GFC, property prices were predicted to fall 40%, but they actually rose in two years following the GFC. Same syndrome. And it's hard to put into an economic formula, but but it's true. Well, it's not uh, that hard to put into an economic economic formula. Like it's really not that hard. Like all you need to do is follow a logic chain. Okay, so let's follow a logic chain there. So let's say there's a war in a war in Ukraine. Okay, which is bad. I got friends who've got family over there. It's not good, right? What tends to happen when there's times of war is supply chains get disrupted, and we've seen that playing out. You know you know, commodities have been disrupted and all of that kind of stuff. So, okay, what happens when supply chains get disrupted? It means the cost of goods goes up. So, oil, food, raw materials, that goes up, okay, because it's harder to get this disruption. Okay, that makes sense. So, what happens when commodity prices or the cost of goods and stuff starts going up? That's inflation. Okay, well, what happens in an inflationary environment? Well, cash devalues faster. The dollars you've got in your hand don't work as well at the shops, cost you more to buy a loaf of bread, etc. right? So, in an environment where cash is at risk of becoming less valuable, what are the best inflation hedges? Like, where do people try and put their money? How do they get certainty? To your point, right? When they feel uncertain, they want to get their money in a place where they feel like they're not going to suddenly see it all disappear, right? And that tends to be really two places precious metals, gold and stuff like that, and real estate, right? And so, I like, when you talk about it, when we when we hear all this kind of stuff in the media, oh my god, it's all going to go bad. It's all going to. I just question. I'm like, what is the, what is the logic pathway that you have used to arrive at the deduction that property prices are going to fall? Because it just doesn't make sense. Like I can't quite work it out. So, yeah. I mean, look, the people who succeed are the people who, as I say, just tune out all the white noise in the background because it's irrelevant, and, and and just think clearly and logically and act independently. I mean. 18 months ago when um, COVID had struck for the first time and media was predicting disastrous consequences for strong mm. uh, property prices, that's when I went out and bought three pieces of real estate in different parts of Australia. And now we're again amidst a, uh, a wave of doom and gloom in media. The boom's over, prices are going to fall. I'm gearing up to buy another couple of properties because, um, you know, buy when others are selling, sell when others are buying, when everyone's panicking, 
that's that's when you keep a cool head and think and act independently. Um, that's when the opportunities exist. Um, you detach from the herd. Most people follow the herd, and that means they buy at the wrong times and often in the wrong places. So, do you ever think? Because you're you're a very you're very pro property, right? Do you do you ever think there could be a situation where you know we get where property the property market crashes, right? Because that does happen in places like you know, obviously saw it in the US back in two thousand and eight, but that was obviously not about property. That was actually about the debt instruments that have been stuffed up by all the quants. But do you ever think we could get in a situation where the property the property market does crash? In Australia, I can't see the circumstances where it could crash. It depends how you define crash, of course. But um, you referred to that situation in the United States um, where post-GFC there was a big reduction, generally speaking, in property values. You've got to look at the, the set of circumstances that generated that. There was, a, there was an accumulation of circumstances that um, perpetrated that decline. It was about 20%, I think, as an average across the board. And given that we've had times in Australia in the last, say, 15 years when people have been forecasting declines of 40%, 50%, 60%. I remember one spruiker came to Australia and trying to drum up publicity for a seminar tour. He said our land values were going to drop 90%. Immediately gave him lots of free publicity as a credible comment. It was just rubbish. It's never happened anywhere in the world that property values have fallen that much, um, certainly never in Australia. But the US, about 20%, I think, is an average at that time. But they had um, incredibly lax lending standards. I mean, anybody could get a loan for anything in the US at that time. Mm. They had a massive oversupply of property. They had a recession and a very high unemployment. So all those things were in a mix, created the circumstances where their property market were going to drop. In Australia, we don't have any of that. We have a shortage of property. We don't have a recession. Um, we don't have, we've got very low unemployment and falling. Um, and we have, despite what some people say, we have very stringent lending criteria. I mean, anyone who says they're lax in this country obviously hasn't applied for a loan to buy real estate recently. The hoops you've mm. got to jump through and the time it takes, even someone like, like myself who's been around doing it for a long time and has got above average income and got a good portfolio and everything in your favour, you've still got to jump through millions of hoops and prove that you're, you're not a vagrant to get a loan to do something in this country. So, you know, we have circumstances that are least likely on the planet for our property prices to crash. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, on that note, Terry, I think that's a good place to leave. That's a good place to leave it. Thanks so much for joining me again. That's okay. There's so much more to say, but... Um, Probably people are going to get sick of this iconic. Class. Well, let's do it. Let's do another one soon. There's been a little while between drinks. Let's let's hook it up again soon, and we can we can kind of keep this going and tackle more myths about the property market. I think that'd be a really good uh, really good way to, to to keep this going. What do you think? Yeah, it, it's so so important to to have these conversations for people to get um, a different perspective from the media one. But um, look. I think the most important message for people to take home is that you, you might be reading a lot of stuff about what's recently happened with property prices. It's irrelevant. Um, what's important is the future, and you, you need to focus on areas that have got strong local economies, diverse economies, creating jobs, major infrastructure spend, affordability, low vacancies, high rental yields. Those conditions exist in many places around Australia, particularly regional Australia. And there's great opportunities there for people to buy well and uh, build a portfolio that will serve them well in the future. I couldn't agree more. 
Couldn't agree more. Mate, great stuff as always. Love your insights. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll see you on the next one. You're welcome. Look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you.